Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this conversation, we speak with Tonya James and Piper Foster Walder from 60 Hertz. 60 Hertz develops maintenance software for off-grid microgrids in remote locations, including solutions for areas where mobile and internet connectivity may be poor. They're based in Alaska, which is home to 13% of the world's microgrids, but are expanding their operations and working on projects around the world. We have a truly wide-ranging conversation discussing why good maintenance processes are critical for remote microgrids, the challenges of integrating renewables to microgrids, their efforts to make their user interface and graphics as international and self-explanatory as possible, and the importance of keeping mental health considerations in mind when working in remote communities where there is often a higher incidence of trauma. We also speak about what it's like for them as a team of three women first-time founders and the challenges around fundraising and building a company in the off-grid energy sector. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Piper, Tanya, welcome to Distributing Solar. It's fantastic to have you here. 60 Hertz is an offline-first maintenance software for remote assets and teams. Can you please tell us what that means? Tell us more about 60 Hertz and what is the problem you're looking to solve? 60 Hertz is focused on maintenance software for people that look after remote energy assets, whether that's in village electrification, rural electrification for first-time electricity users, or beyond the community scale when we are thinking about remote industrial sites. These are places that commonly have microgrids, whether it's a telecom tower, mining site, or fleets of backup energy systems in countries with a weak electrical grid. When we say maintenance, we're always quick to distinguish that it's not monitoring. Operations and maintenance are often said in one breath and people think monitoring, but 60 Hertz picks up where the monitoring platform would leave off. So if there is an alarm, if there is a value out of range, if an asset has gone offline, then it's our tool that would help a local operator identify how to remedy the problem, perhaps to troubleshoot, to note the work and fix that he created and was responsible for, and ultimately to encompass the suite of analytics and optimization that will help a microgrid operator reduce their OPEX. Yeah, well said, Piper. The only thing that I would add is offering a tool for preventative maintenance. What we see in the field generally is folks are still using paper and pencil to manage that preventative maintenance. And it's so imperative for an asset to reach its full life cycle to have that preventative maintenance done. And so that that would be another strong value proposition that we bring is offering a digital tool that can be utilized and then shared with a centralized supervisor so that there's some accountability and oversight of what kind of preventative maintenance program is being done. Thank you both for that. And if I understand correctly, there's a particular focus on the offline side in particular in areas where there may be low connectivity, low access to the internet and so on. So how does your platform work in an offline condition and how do you then get that information to a central location, for instance, or some other kind of platform where people who are perhaps monitoring the assets can then get that information about something going wrong within a site? Maybe I'll start by explaining why this offline capacity is important. When 60 Hertz was first on its feet, we knew there might be a problem with maintaining remote assets. And I started the company, in fact, to finance remote renewable energy at a village scale. But investors said, you have a problem. How will you ensure that the assets are properly maintained? And so by that time, Tanya was aboard and our colleague, Whitney Gant, and we sat in on demos of something like 15 computerized maintenance management system software products, CMMS. That's the sector that we're in. And we thought, we'll just pick one of these off-the-shelf versions. And very quickly, we discovered that not one of them was truly offline, which in places where microgrids are common, remote sites, there's not only not 4G, there may barely be 2G and often satellite, and it could be quite expensive or quite intermittent. And so with 
an activity like maintenance that's dependent on hour-based or regularly scheduled activities, being offline is a real risk. It would ultimately make the software not work. So with the naivete of not really knowing what we were doing, we said, well, sure, we know a little bit about software. Why don't we see if we just can make an, our own app and we'll just create a solution for ourselves. Ultimately, that fully became 60 Hertz. We pivoted and dropped the remote renewable energy finance activity in favor of this really interesting niche in remote maintenance. So maybe I'll defer to Tanya to explain how that works and what the offline means. I think that in the most simplest way, if we think about, as Piper mentioned, the maintenance activity, it has to be done regardless of a connection to the broadband or to the internet. And we have a track, we call it the track app. It's an application that's delivered on a mobile device. So it's either an Android or iPhone, it could be a phone or a tablet. And the field operator, the the power plant operator that has the track app in hand has what he or she needs to run through a preventative maintenance routine to do a certain inspection, has his or her routines at their fingertips, regardless of internet connectivity. So they may be entering values, capturing data, capturing information about the status of a asset. And then at which point there's actually connectivity is found, then the data is pushed through. And we've got a way to prioritize that data. As Piper said, we're very cognizant of the cost of data, especially in emerging markets. So that power plant operator can continue to do their activity and be prompted to do so without having connection. And I think that's the so what is that we can still drive maintenance routines without being connected to the internet. Example is a key value that people see in our product is photo documentation of work mm-hmm. performed. Or if, if someone's trying to solve a problem, they could use our app to message their supervisor a thousand miles away using photos. But it doesn't need to be a photo of crystal clear resolution. And in a limited bandwidth location, that's a huge delay. And it's an encumbering quality to have a really nice clear photo. So we scale that back. We'll take a clear enough photo, but it doesn't need to be crystal clear to economize both upload and download within the platform. And as well, the app is what's called native. So it lives right on the device as opposed to being attained at the cloud. Great. That's super helpful and a great introduction to the details about the product itself. And to maybe take a broader perspective, typically we interview companies working in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia because that's where a lot of the off-grid energy developments are occurring. But you are based in Alaska and have started working in Alaska with a lot of your sites based there. Can you tell us about the energy system in Alaska? I think most people might be surprised to hear that there are many mini-grids or microgrids in Alaska. Why are there so many microgrids there and what uh, the specific benefits that 60 Hertz can bring in those communities. So it is surprising for many people to learn that Alaska has more than 200 native communities, Alaska native communities that are disconnected from a road, from a central transmission utility grid, but that can only be reached by an airplane or, or barge, a boat. So Thanks to the Rural Electrification Act in the United States in the 1920s, we as a nation set the priority of bringing electricity to people. So as Alaska became a state, then each of these remote villages, remote communities also in turn got electricity. This was in the 50s and 60s and 70s. At that time, the term microgrid was not in vogue. And so it was really the good old diesel powerhouse that delivered electricity. But over time, as the state's renewable energy economy has matured, the desire to reduce diesel dependence in these communities is, of course, really an economic factor. I would say climate goals are nice, but the bigger problem is just how incredibly expensive electricity is in Alaska, with 10 communities paying more than a dollar a kilowatt hour because their diesel fuel must be flown in. So as the state put more money into renewable energy, namely wind, there are 30 communities that have a wind project today. Then we started gaining the attention internationally of microgrid developers and the development community to to learn some lessons. Alaska has 30 13% of all the microgrids installed in the world and the shoulders 60 hertz stands on really are the people and the experiences of operating these grids. So we have the longest operating experience of microgrids globally. And as I like to say, that means we know where the bodies are buried because remote operations can be quite fraught and the cost of failure is very expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things you've mentioned in a is that having renewables within a microgrid is particularly challenging 
changing and integrating renewables to microgrids is very different from using diesel. Can you tell us a bit about the specific challenges that you see with trying to integrate, as you mentioned, wind power or any other types of renewable power that you use within the microgrids in Alaska? Yeah, you know, Alaska has pioneered the wind diesel working group, which draws a lot of other actors in the Arctic because that particular mix of energy is very important. So we tend to focus, I'd say the dominant technologies in the Arctic would be wind, diesel, hydropower, and increasingly batteries. Even though there's loads of sunlight all summer, it doesn't coincide necessarily with when someone needs a lot of electricity. So we just have not seen the same solar penetration. A factor in a wind diesel integration comes from the ability to all say downshift the diesel engine so that it can accommodate a big gust of wind. Diesel can't typically respond that quickly. And furthermore, it's rough on the engine to lug it, so to speak, by having it run below an optimum capacity. And so the ability to quickly turn the diesel down and absorb the wind has been challenging for many of our communities and sites. There are a lot of researchers globally, not just in the Arctic, that are thinking about how to make this technically more feasible so that we can really achieve the full diesel dependence that the wind is meant to deliver. But it's challenging and it's not cost effective at this time. Right. And typically, what does that mean? Does that mean there will be a a very brief outage for some of these microgrid communities or battery systems, for instance, being used to provide some kind of balancing service as a result? Yep. Batteries are a good buffer and we're, we're seeing them go in quite a number of ABB batteries across our state. The sad downside is we're seeing either wind projects that failed. So the turbine was installed, but then because of a maintenance event that may not have been remedied, it's just latent infrastructure in a village or it's functioning perfectly well but we're not able to use all of the wind that we have. Now, one of the best examples in the state is being pioneered by our colleagues at IES, which is an engineering firm, and they've been doing vanguard work on wind to heat, where the excess wind can be stashed through an electric heater in the homes of some members of the community. In fact, I believe they started with the elders first in some of these communities to absorb that excess heat that otherwise would simply be flushed. So that's the work that's focused around Alaska. And as I understand, you've also started looking into other emerging markets, other countries around the world. Can you tell us about the work that you're doing there? Where are you focusing on? And I assume it's still all very much raw microgrid focused. That's right. We're grateful to have our first military microgrid off the coast of California at San Nicolas Island. So that's an exciting project. We have a contract with USAID in Colombia and grateful to have closed our first customer in sub-Saharan Africa for a pilot there on a number of microgrids in Tanzania and then have newly a customer pilot serving backup diesel solar battery sites at a network of banks in Nigeria. Piper talked a lot about the technological challenges that we still have with integration, but with the focus of of 60 Hertz providing that maintenance management software to remote assets in Alaska is quite a proxy for many places across the planet where internet connectivity is sparse and intermittent and irregular. And I think it's important to note that some of the things that we were keen to identify Alaska as a proxy for other places is really that lack of connectivity and the rural remote operations where you have regional maintenance management plans with a local site agent of some kind, a power plant operator, or maybe just a caretaker. And then you have roving technicians. And I think the exciting things that we're hearing in the market are that regional maintenance model is applied in many different landscapes, whether the distance is defined by truly islanded grids on an island or it's in multiple villages in a rural place in Tanzania. I'll be honest, I teared up on one of our sales calls that we were on with a utility in Malaysia and hearing the similarities of problems that they were addressing, of personnel management, and thinking about how hard Tanya and I have been working in this space to solve issues for our friends in the Arctic, and then to discover just it's line and verse identical in so many other parts of the world, just a really meaningful connection. 
Yeah, that's particularly interesting from because I'm from Malaysia. I was born in Malaysia, grew up there, oh. and then moved to the UK, which is where I get my accent. But I, I think oh. it's fascinating, as you say, to know that there are so many parts of the world where I think they say they have a hundred percent electrification in Malaysia, and you assume there are no major issues, but clearly that there are too. Well, they are achieving tremendous goals. We were on with the utility in Sarawak. Then, oh. since mm-hmm. you're likely familiar, they have achieved incredible electrification goals, and it's getting. To to that last 5% that could be the most challenging and expensive. Right, absolutely. And I guess thinking about the different types of groups, and Tonya, you've already mentioned islands as well. What are the main customer types or businesses or organizations, government entities that you work with? How do you find your customers and where do they come from? A lot of our domestic customers are, are co-ops, and so they've got multiple sites and, and some sort of cooperative, which works quite nicely. With our emerging markets, we're seeing our inbound marketing efforts prove to be successful. And those, we have developers, operators, we'd be keen to mention we're interested in the telecom market, seeing that the towers and their need for power and maintenance as a service for those markets. Of course, military, there's a lot of opportunity that we're learning more and more through this, our first and Initial flagship customer in, that Piper mentioned in St. Nicholas Island. But my background is also prior military, and there's certainly an application for uh, military with forward operating bases, especially in locations where locals are helping to maintain assets. Tanya is humble, but I love to brag about her military service. So Tanya is a combat veteran and served in Afghanistan and also is the 17th generation in her family to, to serve in our armed forces. That's amazing. Well, thank you for your service. And have you seen the relevance of the work that you've done, both in your military service, but then also the work that you're doing on military basis at the moment? It's interesting because most of my early career was in law enforcement and, and military service. So it's been quite interesting and a personal journey for me to identify where the skills that I developed in both law enforcement and in my military experience have best applications. And it's been intriguing to find opportunities to utilize some of the interview techniques that I've learned as a police officer and listening skills in sales calls, which um, saying that publicly, I'm worried I might scare off the next prospect. But um, (laughs) truly, I think consultative sales are so important in this space and ensuring that what we're listening for is customers need and ensuring that we vet ourselves appropriately. Are we the right solution? And I think that is something that we do quite well and with transparency and integrity. So it has been fun to, and and like I said, a personal journey to figure out where my skill sets are being most beneficial to 60 Hertz. And fortunately, I've also since 60 Hertz decided I needed to get a little bit more education. So I'm finishing my MBA. So there's some practical application there too, as well that I I bring to bear. Well, and I would say for any of your listeners who who are also startups or are working in a startup environment, I think having the grit and the endurance and the mental fortitude of a combat soldier is probably another Mm -hmm. great contribution. Yeah, (laughs) we can imagine. How did you get from combat service to energy and renewable energy and microgrids? That is quite a long story, but in brief, I had a friend and colleague of mine that came to me and said, hey, you know, I think that there's an opportunity here with this technology that I found in Italy, and I think we need to go take a look at it. We were both motivated. I'm also Alaska Native. I've got friends and family that live in the YK Delta, the western portion of the state, and they do pay exorbitant amounts in energy costs. And he presented an argument to me that this technology might be something that we could utilize to help reduce the cost of energy. And that alone was worth some due diligence. So I started a a company and learned a lot in that effort. And that was pretty much the introduction to this space for me. And I haven't left it since. Amazing. And Piper, what about you? How did you get to the energy space? And then actually would love to hear about how you both came together and founded the company. I have worked in in energy throughout my career. I started as an intern in Amory Levin's office at Rocky Mountain Institute in Old Snowmass, Colorado, and was so interested in the space. I think initially during the first half of my career, the focus was a lot about policy solutions, sustainability, combating climate change, and then went on 
on to help start an Internet of Things company in Aspen called Amatis Controls and had the chance to develop a thermal heat meter with my colleagues there, which connected me to the solar thermal space. And if you followed solar thermal at all, the sad story is that those systems fail silently. In fact, one of the most stirring calls during my tenure at Amatis was with a contractor whose job was to haul solar thermal systems off people's roofs all across California and instead replace it with PV. Fast forward, my life changed. I got married and moved to Alaska and had never heard the term microgrid until I arrived. But both because of the new work when I moved to Alaska, as well as having had the chance to travel with my husband, who is a a documentary and commercial photographer, as we traveled to remote communities, in particular some of our villages, I was really touched on a human level by the quality of living conditions that so many people in our remote communities face. It's not fair it's not just. And energy is a huge component of this, the high cost of energy. So about a year and a half after moving to Alaska, this idea of a way that a company could drive change quickly kind of came to light and percolated up. So I worked really hard on the weekends and at night in the summer of 2016. I was only a year into the marriage. And so my poor husband, I was just like consumed with this idea of what we could do and raising a fund and how renewable energy could better be financed. So ultimately founded the company very late in 2016. It was really just registering with the state of Alaska as a corporation and then continued working on it in the early part of 2017. And at that point had met Tanya at a conference when she raised her hand and was bold and provocative to a very influential leader in our state and, you know, asked some strong questions. And I had the chance to follow up and just thought she was cool and nothing came immediately. But then as our lives kind of reconnected and a 60 Hertz was becoming more of a, a real idea, we officially decided to work together. And important to note is our dear co-founder, Whitney Gant, who was a childhood friend of mine and just such an invaluable first thought partner as, as again, during that kind of winter of 2016 into 2017, as the idea was brewing. And so Whitney and Tanya and I really steered this forward, thanks in large part to funding from the business accelerator, the startup accelerator that was also on its feet as a toddler in 2017, had its second cohort we were a part of that year. And so that really helped us with a little seed funding to get started and also the structure, the mentorship to form ourselves and to hone our processes and approach the lean startup methodology and do a lot of customer discovery that year. I think we shadowed 50 power plant operators in the U.S. and Canada that summer in order to understand what this software would need to to do. Wow. And it must be almost unheard of to have three women founders for an energy company. And I guess around that and the journey of creating a startup and finding your idea, what has been the, the biggest challenge that you faced in the last three, four years of building the company I'm going to be curious to see what Tanya says about yeah. this. We haven't asked each other lately, but um, I think for me, the biggest challenge first that we are not technical. So neither Tanya nor I nor Whitney had our chief technology officer. We have not written code. Whitney brings the most to this in terms of background because she had been at Grameen Foundation, the head of mobile agriculture and developed in partnership with technical counterparts, software for smallholder farmers. And so So she knew five years more than we did about this, but also would not be classified as a CTO or even head of product. And so we have really struggled in getting a perfect fit in terms of capacity, teammate, et cetera, as we've had to develop our software on our own. So we've learned some expensive lessons, but so grateful that the product that we have now and that we're in the market with now is enterprise scale and is robust and is flexible and is smart and um, really grateful for where we've come to on this. I'd say point number two for me is HR. Everyone says this. It's just, this is hard work. This is difficult work. It's both a family as well as a business. And so gratefully, Tanya has a much better head on her shoulders for people management than I do and has saved us multiple times. But we've also had to fire a lot of people and it's just been challenging. And then I think the third thing while I'm complaining is raising money is, of course, also very difficult. I think it's getting better as we have a little bit more traction and track record. But the weight of skepticism 
that rains down upon me in these investor calls was far worse raising the seed. But there isn't a moment that I wake up that I I don't believe in this company and think it's going to be successful all the way through. And yet investors naturally don't have that same passion and familiarity with the market and the huge gap that we're filling. So that can be really, really challenging. Even if they're right and we're wrong, the effort and the dedication and just countless late nights will respect forever anyone who says that they're a founder or co-founder because I know now what that means. And until you have actually lived this for years, no one can understand what commitment this takes. Yeah, absolutely. And Tonya would love to hear what you found has been most challenging too. But just to ask a bit more about that challenge around fundraising, have you found that most investors don't see the potential or are they skeptical about the solution? I guess, is it just that they aren't familiar with the potential of the off-grid market and microgrids or about the industry more generally? Yeah, it's a good question. Two things have happened. First, Alaskan investors that, you know, I had to start here. And so they were skeptical that the market was bigger and broader than Alaska. So then it was painting the picture that microgrid development really is a thing and that it's got huge numbers, about 250,000 sites, villages alone over the next eight years. When we look at telecom towers, we're just talking about nearly a million towers globally. It was really hard to sell Alaskans on this broader vision. And it was hard to, because I'm not from Alaska. And there's a real preference for longevity and people that can cite when their grandfather moved here. That's getting better, but it, that was that's fun. really why I'm working with her. Yeah, John is really was here like eons before any of these other guys. So um, <laughs> the credentials. <laughs> and then you know, once we did get that initial confidence and, and raised our seed, investors who were coming from Europe or other parts of North America were really skeptical that a company. That it was from Alaska made sense because then how could we possibly run a company from Anchorage? So I'd say location has been a challenge. We are first time founders. So that may be in the back of some investors' minds. I think if you are an investor purely seeking a unicorn and only looking at TAM, it's quite a reductionist view of what will ultimately make you money. And I think a lot of good deals are getting left on the table because someone doesn't think they're going to be a billionaire by investing in them. It would make a lot more sense. And when I'm an investor, I think I would say, what's a product that can be good enough and still make 10, 11, 30, 40 million a year in revenue? I'm not sure that the equation is yielding the results that investors hope for. And I think it has to be said, finally, that globally, only 2.8% of venture capital goes to a single female founder. So the odds are really against you. Investors tend to prefer white male teams. And that's getting better. And the more we talk about it, the better it will get. But I think we've had to outperform unconscious bias and therefore recruit belief in, in this team and this product. Absolutely. I certainly share a lot of those observations and see the bias. So I, I think all the more impressive and commendable what you've done so far. And I guess then returning to the question, Tanya, what have you found the most challenging about working and building the company? I think challenges that I'd like to share are ones that I find quite rewarding as well. It's really been interesting and, and probably something I don't think Piper nor I characterized as a challenge, but when we're working with our customer base that traditionally have been utilizing paper and pencil, Excel, fax machines, when they're using processes that are decentralized and, and feel antiquated in most regards and moving them from that process to a digital process with centralized information that's accessible to folks across corporate, different departments, it requires change management. And that's something that is quite challenging for anybody that has done it. I have much appreciation for the efforts and, and the thoughtfulness that needs to go into change management, even with something that, to be frankly honest, I wouldn't have thought it would be as difficult as it is. So that is a challenge that I think we face often and we're getting better about how to support customers and be good consultants in the process. And I think it's been very rewarding to see us mature in that area. I guess on the growth of the business, we're still characterized as a startup company. There's oftentimes comments between Piper and I that when you sit down at the keyboard, they're normally not easy decisions to be made. Piper mentioned grit. And I think that the challenge around that necessity is finding balance, both with giving 100% to 60 hertz, but we both have families and recognizing that there's a balance. I recently heard an Alaska Native woman leader say to save the best of yourself for your children. And I think that that's quite important 
important and difficult to do when you're starting a company like ours, that it's complex. So that's a, a challenge I think Piper and I both face. And we have a great relationship that we offer each other a lot of grace and space and support to ensure that we're both trying to keep that in mind as we go forward. And Whitney, I wish she was in this interview, but I think that that's probably one of the challenges that has been most difficult from the startup experience. I can't help but chime in on that point because as I tell Tanya and as regularly occurs, I am often moved to tears by the functionality, the healthiness of our relationship. I mean, we have to work together through periods of great stress, periods of just endurance. And I am so grateful that the one thing I never need to worry about is where I stand with Tanya and she knows the same thing about Mm -hmm. me. I know this can be an issue with startups. I think there often is strife between the co-founders and just so grateful that that has not been a challenge for us, but it has been conscious. I mean, we talk to each other and that takes work and I don't mm-hmm. think either of us are very quick to get offended. That's the other thing we, we <laughs> tend to, just Tanya said, a lot of stuff rolls off the back and, and we should probably explain, lest people are wondering where Whitney is in this equation, <laughs> that she rolled on from 60 Hertz in 2018 to work for another very exciting startup that was a little closer to her interest area, but has remained very, very involved and is on our board and gratefully is coming back to 60 hertz early next year. Oh, great. That sounds amazing. And in a more optimistic and, and positive tone, then what are your plans and what are your goals for the next three to five years as you continue to build the company? Oh, so many. The future is always really exciting, of course. So our product roadmap is increased functionality, integrating with microgrid controller companies with hitting more components of our roadmap to be more competitive in the market. An area that we haven't touched on too much, but that Tanya and I are really passionate about is low literacy user interface design. You know, this is kind of an emerging field in software where you have people globally who can afford a smartphone, but may not be literate or may not be familiar with technology. We extend that a step further to say they may not be very well trained on the energy asset that they are working on or responsible for. An exciting project for us this year was to partner with a solar battery manufacturer who is distributing his equipment across villages in Suriname and wanted our help bringing what we've learned and what we're researching, what we know about creating explanatory graphics in a manner that the customer can easily follow, the user can easily follow to successfully install or troubleshoot or perform a preventative maintenance checklist. The result is a really cool visual installation guide. Explanatory graphics, if they're well done, look childlike and easy, but it's, as we've been learning, not that easy to convey ideas of distance, of motion, of yes, of no. Color coding doesn't line up internationally. The red, yellow, green symbols may not necessarily mean something. How about thumbs up, thumbs down? Not always either. So this is an area that I'm hopeful that we get to do a whole lot more with. And then I'll just finish my hit list. But the thing that I'm also starting to see increasingly in rural electrification, particularly in Africa, is a priority on women being the maintenance personnel responsible, which we believe will bring another opportunity to extend the the very female nature of our team and apply what we know about maintenance activities and about how we all learn best, how we troubleshoot best through our software to those users. I think I would just add, I'm really excited about our product roadmap, specifically with integrations and some notifications and automations of workflows that really make sense. I think we have a core tenant of our product development is human-centered design research. And I think we've been quite disciplined in maintaining that approach as we look at what we're going to develop in the future. And that informed approach is exciting to me because a lot of the times being the one that gets to go into the field pre-COVID, it's fun to to know that there's things that we're developing that will be impactful, both for the power plant operator, the caretaker that may not have formal education, that provides them opportunity to be upskilled inside their workflow. There's something very dynamically different. If I need to go to a manual that's on a binder that's got dust on top of it that's sitting back at the powerhouse, I may or may not go look through it. I might just try to figure it out rather than a application that's in my hand. I'm working on this specific step and I have opportunities that help to remind, to train, to coach, teach, mentor what I'm supposed to do in that very specific step. And I think the product roadmap lends lends itself to giving us more opportunities to do that better. And I'm excited about that. 
it's really interesting to hear in particular about how much focus and attention the human dimensions of your work takes within either designing the product or the user guide or the user interface. And it's clearly not just about solving a technical challenge. And I suppose related to that, one thing that I noted from one of your talks or discussions in the past is that many of these remote communities have particular struggles with mental health, for instance, and your pioneering approaches to mental health. Can you tell us a bit more about this? What is this initiative and what are the goals and the proposals that you're trying to implement? So this is a tender subject, but some of your listeners may be familiar with the Adverse Childhood Experience Thesis, which is a body of research that came out of the University of California in the 80s or early 90s, identified 10 experiences that if they happen to us in our childhood can be very paralyzing for an individual's future growth. And it ranges from watching a loved one or your parent, for instance, be verbally or physically abused, being sexually, verbally, physically abused yourself, living with an addict, being incarcerated. And so sadly, uh, if this has happened to you, it can decrease someone's ability to hold down a job ever. It can cap their total annual income at an average of 20000 a year. And once I became familiar with this thesis, it happened to be right around the time that 60 Hertz was starting. It gave me a lot more empathy and understanding for situations that we may observe and matched to some of the stories that we'd been hearing about maintenance issues. An anecdote that would say something like, well, this community lost power because so-and-so had a fight with his girlfriend and wandered off from the community and never looked after that. He was the power plant operator. And so the diesel gen set failed. We were just hearing iterations of that same thing over and again. And that's not only on the village power side, but when you have a workforce that may statistically statistically be more likely to have high rates of trauma, whether we identify it through the adverse childhood experience lens or through other academic understandings of trauma, historical trauma. This is extending as we've been researching it to workplace trauma. So if you are an oil and gas site or a mining site, the likelihood of seeing a colleague killed right in front of you on the job is statistically far, far more likely. Similarly, for our military personnel with the trauma of war, that's much more commonly under Understood. As we've expanded our work in Colombia, understanding that people are just emerging from the last 30 years of civil war, that there will be people in remote communities who have lived through horrendous trauma too. So how do you go forward with that? What's the relationship between a self-care checklist? What are some of the resiliency techniques that having a good job can actually bring? Increasing your dignity, increasing a sense of control over someone's environment and their immediate working space regularity of a routine, and not least of which first to mention attachment, feeling that you're part of a network of colleagues where microgrids are by definition disconnected. How can our software be a bridge to help unite people, to help them feel dignified in their work, to let them know that they're part of a larger community, to help make visible the activity that they're doing. So we would fall and stop intentionally far short considering ourselves a treatment or or anything in that direction, but simply to say that we are thinking about ways to incorporate a trauma-informed element within the software in recognition of the very painful life experiences that some of our users may have gone through. Thank you for that. That's really interesting to hear about. Piper, you've already mentioned the difficulties around fundraising and the challenges around getting investors to come on board. And earlier this year, you announced a fundraising round with Factor E Ventures. But as I was looking about information for 60 Hertz, I also came across an Indiegogo crowdfunding raise. Can you tell us more about what the whole process of fundraising has been like for you and which sources of funding have you been able to tap into and has been most useful? I I feel sweaty even thinking about that Indiegogo. I think that was right before a demo day in 2017. Mm -hmm. And Tanya threw together a wonderful video and our Indiegogo platform, you know, just minutes before we were going on stage, as I recall. And I I think that did bring in a little money initially that the sweetest thing of the Indiegogo component was just seeing the breadth of care and generosity from people in our network, you know, folks from high school and different chapters of life who were willing to write these very generous checks for the vision. Ultimately, we then raised a $1.3 million seed round that concluded with Factor E's investment last December. And right now we're going back to market to raise a bridge round before our A late next year. 
And have you been able to raise funds from traditional VCs or impact investors? Or has it been companies or VCs focused more on the development space or an emerging market? So we were very blessed to have an early strategic, a major utility right off the bat that understood our value and and understood well the pain point that we were addressing. That was matched by a couple of funds, again, in Alaska that were more traditional VC for small check sizes, but, you know, very meaningful at that stage of our development. Factor E is the first impact investor, and we've been in a series of wonderful conversations during the course of raising the bridge with other impact investors that really get the space, that really understand and the problem set that we're addressing. When we talk with more conventional, even angels that are driving toward a different exit outcome and expectation that what I think map more squarely with other VC conversations, you know, like a corporate VC or a fund, then we'll be pressured more on the returns and maybe more skeptical about how commercializable a microgrid market even can be, whereas impact investors have already solved that question, answer that question for themselves and know that this is a real market and a real space. So I think this will be a really fun part of next year that I'm looking forward to too, is to demonstrate how our pricing model, how our product scales Mm -hmm. to satisfy both investors. So impact absolutely sees their metrics hit, whereas a a VC fund or angel expecting those kinds of returns will, will also see them. Wishing you the best of luck for that fundraising. Thank you. Are there any other topics or areas that you like to discuss or always wish that people would ask you about? Well, you know, there is ever given a slight door opening to hop on my soapbox. Please do (laughs) permit me to to share (laughs) a concern, you know, and especially given the nature and the topic of distributing solar, I think others need to be aware of a skeleton in a closet that our sector has perhaps overlooked. As mentioned, Tanya and I have worked in renewable energy for some time me for my entire career. And I'm afraid that as a renewable sector, so very broadly as a clean energy sector, there's a lot of emphasis on ribbon cutting ceremonies and how many kilowatts have we installed? What's Mm -hmm. the capacity that we're bringing to market? But those installed kilowatts are only as good as they are actually optimized, functional and operating. And so when we structure deals or particularly when we fund projects with grants, there can be a major gap in how the projects are ultimately incentivized to operate at optimum efficiency and even to validate that they're still operating. So as we are focused on maintenance and troubleshooting, we hear a lot of stories and see a lot of examples of renewable assets placed in service that may silently fail. And a classic example would be if a remote battery loses connectivity when it was at a low state of charge and no one knows or the monitoring is not actually ringing an alarm or the local site agent can't be reached to go check out what's happening, that can be a very expensive asset fail that can also create a black eye for the industry if we aren't careful. I think one of the top 10 conversations I won't forget from 2020 was with a colleague who operates Solar O&M Collaborative. And she noted that her installer base is concerned that the decreasing cost of solar is great, but that at times can mean a decrease in quality. So the forecast lifespan of some of our components of 15 to 20 20 to 30 years is based on a different vintage and era of manufacturing. This is why keeping an eye on the maintenance, keeping an eye on how the long-term efficacy and operation of particularly remote sites and remote renewables is so critical if we really will achieve the carbon reduction goals that we're here for, let alone price efficiencies for our users. That's fascinating to hear about. And I, I recently spoke with Odyssey Energy Solutions, whom I'm sure yeah. you know well because of Factory as well. And it seems as though there's a real overlap almost and convergence in where both of your companies are working on and also other companies within the Factory investment thesis. Is that part of the, the goal of Factory as a fund and bringing together startups that can solve different problems within a value chain? Yeah, I think it was absolutely strategic on, on their part to recognize that microgrids are a thesis worth investing in. And then there are three of us really within the portfolio, also Ferntech, right. that compose just a, a really elegant Venn diagram with limited overlap on one another, but just enough for a handshake of that data and activity. I think they made some good bets. As you were talking, Piper, something that just comes to mind to me is there's this honeymoon phase or stage of development and operations, and it depends on the environment and the tech stack. Is that five years? Is that 10 years? But it, it is truly a honeymoon stage where if they don't have the experiences 
of managing remote assets and the, the cost of failure is high. If they haven't gone through those pain points, it's often sad to see an emboldened thought that you can put an asset in a place, you can slap monitoring on it and it's fine and you kind of set and forget that mentality, it will drive assets to uh, poor performance and to failure. And I think just ensuring that assets do need to be maintained. And as we say, it's not the sexy part of microgrids, but it's the most important. And really, it's oftentimes the place where you get the most local stakeholder buy-in and engagement because you can employ somebody. And that's a really neat opportunity that 60 Hertz plays an interesting role. And we're oftentimes quite humbled by the role because we get enriched in experience. But I think just to remind folks that assets, no matter where they are, but certainly in remote places where it's costly to get to them, they need maintenance. And if you don't think so, it's just because you haven't been operating in them long enough. Absolutely. So to close our conversation, I'd like to ask a few quick questions to learn more about the company and both of you as well. And the, the one I really like to ask all companies is where did your name 60 Hertz come from? 60 Hertz is the frequency at which electricity is distributed, at least in North America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Luckily, many other countries do. But right off the bat, someone said, well, what about 50 Hertz? And I said, oh, well, we'd be lucky to have that problem years down the road. We'll stick with our frequency, even if it might demand a bit of explanation in other countries countries. <laughs> That's great. And there's obviously the company 60 decibels as well. Do you get mixed up with that company because they're working in a very similar space or at least in the off-grid space? No, and actually had never heard of them. Tanya, had you? No, I hadn't. And that's interesting because, you know, I, I do the marketing side of the house so that I'm going to have to look them up. Yeah, I guess they're more on the impact measurement side, but they were a spinoff of Acumen which I'm sure you'll know is the Impact Investment Fund. And they focus in particular on getting feedback from customers around how the connection to the grid or connection to microgrids, for instance, have impacted the lives of people. Do you have any books that you recommend to our listeners? They don't have to be off-grid or solar related, but maybe some of your favorite books or movies. I I will be forever grateful to Jason Doherty, who was our Mm -hmm. CTO for much of this year, because he lit the fire and really held us accountable for reading a lot more. I think it's so easy in this phase of life to say we're too busy for any of that. But Jason constantly was reading and listening to books and then keeping Google Docs of notes on the books that he'd read. And it has enriched my leadership and our thought process so much. My favorite books of 2020, the top of the list is one called Traction, about the various traction channels from our marketing and that it's really incumbent on any startup to split the time. It's 50% product and 50% selling that product. I think that really inspired both Tanya and me. I think I'd also point to two other books of the recent past, one called Insight, Why You're Not as Self-Aware as You Think. And that's a good one to make you very paranoid, but also braver about asking people for feedback on, on who you are and how you are. And then I'll just round it out with a total wild card, which is I'm reading a biography of Dolly Parton right now. And I think she's such a tremendous figure in Americana and certainly a singer that I grew up listening to, but at a time when in this country, partisanship is really catastrophic. This isn't politics. This is something else. And seeing Dolly Parton's unifying presence, the power of country music to unify all of us, I'm really looking for places to invest my time and energy that are rooted in how similar we are and how unified we are when it it seems to be screaming quite the opposite. I'm just smiling because Piper and I are very different. I think that difference has only been beneficial to 60 Hertz because we have such a good relationship. But I'll give you a few of the ones that stand out to me. And I I appreciate that we brought up Jason because Jason was so helpful across so many different business functions that I needed to get some schooling on and education. And so, as I said, I'm just finishing up my MBA. So there was a lot of academic reading that I had to do. But I'll share a couple from this last year that I really enjoyed. I really liked Extreme Ownership, written by a couple of U.S. Navy SEALs, Jocko Willick and Leif Babin. That's just an excellent book on leadership. And I really appreciated actually reading it, listen to it. I still listen to it every now and again. I go back to sections of it. I really like that one. 
Another one, Drive by Daniel Pink. That was one Jason recommended. That was a really interesting read and just kind of eye-opening to what motivates people. Why do people do what they do? That one was especially in line with our product development and, and just being keen on what causes people to do the things that they do, what motivates them. And then another one that I'm really quite fond of is a series written by a, a psychologist by the name of Cy Wakeman. It's called Reality-Based Leadership. And that's just a, a really good read and I continue to follow some of her work that she's been doing related to leadership and, and management of people and interpersonal skills. So those are the, the ones that, that stand out to me from readings from last year. Thank you. And is there any particular piece of advice that you would give to someone who's looking to enter the off-grid sector, either as an entrepreneur or as an investor? I think timeline. This is a, a sector that needs a bit more patience. Mm -hmm. I really predict our customers are going to be sticky. And so even if it takes a long time to close some deals or it takes a bit longer to see those rates of return, I believe it's going to be for the long haul. And I think part and parcel to that is also how familial it is. We joke often that everyone in Alaska thinks Alaska is so exceptional and so different and that what happens here is, is so different. You couldn't possibly understand if you're from somewhere else. And, and to a certain that there's some truth in that. I mean, the, the distance, the climate, things are different here. But I think our colleagues in remote parts of the world everywhere would say that insofar as 60 Hertz is really crafting a niche in this like rugged remote maintenance with a focus on microgrids, the, the familial nature, people tend to know one another, they have heard of one another, the network effect also makes it perhaps a better place to develop business. I think the only advice, but I think this applies no matter what sector you're in, and maybe particularly it does apply more here, but just that relationships really matter across the value chain, like from the local end user to the economic buyer. Relationships are very important because once you've lost credibility, it's very difficult to come back from that. And I think that's because of the familial network that we have in rural places. It just seems more meaningful if you're coming into emerging markets in the energy access space, recognizing that relationships and every relationship is really important. And so our final question, what are your predictions for the off-grid energy sector for the next five years? Well, growth, definitely growth. But I think it will be an unusual and cool experience of rural places teaching urban places something new. As we're seeing increasing incidents of catastrophic hurricanes, wildfires, I think traditional utilities infrastructure is going to become increasingly untenable in certain places and microgrids will be on the rise. The prediction I hope comes true is that we have volunteer microgrid operations centers that are staffed the same way our volunteer fire departments are today, that when we have to have distributed nodes to bring critical power in the event of disruption, that even getting traditional utility personnel to these sites may become impossible. But that as we want electricity to be something people are more aware of and more viscerally aware of, I think there'll be great lessons from remote places, emerging economies that could be brought home even to large urban grids. I agree with that. That sounds like a good way to end the show. Well, thank you so much. That sounds fantastic and definitely agree with you on the prediction around growth. Thank you, Tanya. And thank you, Piper, for joining us. Absolutely pleasure. That was our conversation with Tonya James and Piper Foster-Walder from 60 Hertz. If you have any questions or comments, please visit us on our website at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful sources and contact details available. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review. It helps others like you find this podcast. Thank you.